Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Namo saranto sucedo ye olahudi san miyao san putoshe. The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master and Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. This is Saturday night, September 8, 2012. We're here at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. And uh, I haven't heard a word about three days from now, 9-11. But nobody said a word about it. I guess we're too interested in echo. echo. I know it's an echo. There is an echo in the room, definitely. <laughs> and I would like to erase that one, but uh, we're, I don't know. I have no idea where it came from, and we'll have to track it down later. Better? Not funny, but you didn't do anything, did you? No, see? That's the ghost in the room. And, 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 and we, 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 we can make it bigger. Ah, the wonders of a new sound system. A Thursday night group. Oh, Chinwei Shi, you... The Reaver. Well, hey, I kind of liked it. Go put it back on there. It sounds like... Makes us sound very profound. My voice sounds heavier and weightier. If only it had more principle, right? Can you hit the principle button? Take it up to about 10. Right? Truth over to 11. Okay, uh, let us now, next thing we have to do is invoke the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Avatamsaka assembly. And we do that by chanting the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. So please join me in doing that. Namo
In your sutra text, please turn to page 66 and 67. going to start on the third the third paragraph of the verses so that would be if you're counting every line it would be line one two three four five six seven guanju yowei guanju sounds like this. I've done the, redone the English. He contemplates how all things born of conditions have a fatal flaw. They're tied to anxiety, depression, misery, and delusion. The bonfires are three poisons always blazing, and how from time without beginning it is so without cease. Yeah, and then would you boost the volume just a tad? Okay. What I want to do is hear my voice coming back, but not with the echo, 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 echo. Okay, great. Just a little more, please. Just a touch. Louder. Okay. Ah, nice. Just right. Okay. Um, last week, we talked about how the Bodhisattva is uh, starting out in the third ground and how these... Um, the first thing that he does is he turns on his wisdom vision, which allows him to see how things around him that used to be solid and reliable and usual, normal, stop being that way. Now the things around him are like he has microscopic vision, he can see through things, through the skin, through the surface, and it freaks him out. Uh, you know, that's not exactly right. That doesn't sound right. It doesn't freak him out. 
Initially, it freaks him out. But quickly, he notices, and, and this, I said it turns it on. He's able to use this kind of vision. He can also see things normal because he has to function in the world. Oatmeal still looks like oatmeal, and you eat it and you, you get full. But it's not so much that things scare him. He's not reacting against them. But now this vision of how all things whatsoever are, we talked about last week about the three uh, hallmarks, the three signs that signify all conditioned things. He sees how they don't have any permanent separate identity. He sees how they come together temporarily and briefly. They're not together for long. And he sees how they don't satisfy. They don't hit that place. They don't hit the mark, right? They don't do it. They don't do it the way he always hoped that they would and that the world promises that if you get the new one, it will. He's believed that for a while, but now he actually sees them as different. His vision sees them as different. The verb that they use is guan. They kind of contemplates them as different. And he sees them that way. So can he stop seeing them? I suppose he could not pay attention, but now the bodhisattva's vision just goes farther and farther and farther. And he sees how it says here what? Um, he contemplates how all things that are born of conditions have a fatal flaw. That's not exactly what the Chinese says. What does the Chinese say? The Chinese says, Guan, he looks at, he contemplates, Zhu Yao Wei. Yao Wei means things that have doing to them. Things that are done by, done to. In other words, all of the all of creation. Christian language is um, the the God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. Right, kingdom of God would be uh, everything that is made, everything that that comes together because of God's grace and infinite mercy. That's the language of of the churches on all sides. Why do I bring that up? It's because who else talks about the universe? Sky pilots, right? Churches. You go to church on Sunday to find out how things are. And you trust that they know. And that uh, the minister, the pastor, the rabbi, um, not so much the imams, because imams are mostly prayer leaders, um, but the scripture, the word, the logos, the the good, the gospel, should be the place to go to find out how things really are. Some people who don't turn to religion, who do they turn to? Physicists. Physicists are supposed to be the high priests of hard science. If anybody knows how things are, the physicists better know. Partly chemists, partly biologists. Um, we don't go to computer scientists to ask how things are because they're dealing with something that didn't exist 25, 30 years ago. So they're too new. But physics is supposed to be able to look deeply into the heart of where things come from and give us a description of how it works. Well, physics, by and large, says, right, things are made up of other stuff. And physics is relatively new. Physics gives us the advantage of looking at the nature of reality and giving us some laws. They're called theorems. 
Sometimes they're just called theories because it's not proven yet. But physics by and large says, here's how stuff works. If it's heavy, this will happen. It's going to, 100 times out of 100, that's going to happen because this has weight. And gravity will act upon a body that once in motion tends to stay in motion until it hits something it can't move, something it has another kind of mass. So these are the laws of physics. Okay, conditioned things are like that. However, this one we mentioned last week, this is made up of former hydrocarbons. It's a living thing made of wood, which means its molecules will be set in motion by heat. If the heat is hot enough, so burn, turn to smoke and ash. Right? So physics laws. Heat will liberate the stability of the molecules of this wood. So we talked about water going to ice and going to, to, to uh, steam. Condensation goes back to water. You know, it's like that's the laws of physics that science has brought us that advantage. The Buddha looked at, the Buddha used his wisdom and said, yeah, right, that's, that's the way things are. Everything is made up of other stuff. Because it's made up of other stuff, it will come apart at some point. If we like it and it comes apart, what happens? Hurts. Suffer. If we hate it and we can't get rid of it, suffer. So things made up of conditions are, what does it say? Guan, he looks at all things made up of conditions as a what? A heavy illness, a serious illness. Zhong Bing. Saying in English, he contemplates how all things born of conditions are like a serious illness, doesn't, doesn't have that, doesn't communicate immediately. It's a funny image. So I translate it as, have a fatal flaw are seriously flawed. Now, bing can be mao bing in Chinese. It doesn't mean illness. It can also mean trouble, problem. Oh, mao bing. He's got a problem. He's got a, a defect, right? We could say all things born of conditions have a major defect, something built right in to it. It's not perfect. And what is it? It's that they are... Powerful line. All things that come together, all things made of components, they're tied up to, they're connected to, they're inextricably bound up with four things. So suffering, grief, anxiety, pain, misery, delusion, all those words are connected there. In other words, the blues, stuff you don't want. Right? Problem, big trouble. All things made up of conditions bring us misery, the blues, grief, anxiety, pain, trouble. Now, all that stuff, kunao. Lots of pain. Okay, so let's stop right there. Take a look. That's what the Bodhisattva is, sees as he looks out at the world of stuff and things, including his body. So the sentient and insentient world alike 
show the bodhisattva that there's pain ahead. How do you hear that? Would you say this bodhisattva is just like, just depressed? Does he need to get happy? <laughs> no. Hey, lighten up, bodhisattva. Get happy. What, what is it? Is it accurate? Is, is he just, you know, uh, malcontent? Is he going to be a shut-in? You know about the new generation of Japanese young people who never leave their rooms? Have you heard about that group? What's their name? Joshua. Zai. 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 In Japanese, do you know what it is? Zai. People who never leave their rooms. They they have had enough of the world outside, and so they complete. Now it's a an internet phenomenon because by and large they're still online, but they never leave their room. They just stay inside, and you know that's how they live. Food comes to the door, and it's Japanese goyo. They're in shut-ins, voluntary shut-ins. So. Is that how the Bodhisattva sees the world? I don't know. Now, so this is, I'm only partly in jest here. What do you think about that? It's like the Bodhisattva looks at everything in the world. So starting with his skin and his body, to the flowers, to his automobile, to the mountains, they say, Shanghadadi, the mountains, the rivers, and the planet itself. He says, everything around me brings on suffering in the end, brings on, doesn't hit the spot, brings on dissatisfaction in my heart. That's the end result of everything around me. So, let's say, pause here. Does that strike you as like a seriously depressed attitude? Or is there something deeper? Does your observation convince you that's true? Do you think, I mean, do you want to be like that? Do you want to see it like the Bodhisattva sees it? Or do you like think that the Bodhisattva needs to lighten up? Where does this come from? Let's, maybe the text will give us a clue. Okay, let's go further. See what else it says. It says, Bu jing. Let's see here. Here we go. San du meng huo heng chi ran. Three poisons ferocious bonfire always blazing, blazing. The three poisons, ferocious bonfire, menghuo, means like blazing. It's always flaming up. It's always flaring up. What are the three poisons? Okay, sandu. First of all, what's one poison? Poison will kill you. I remember uh, we talked the other night about, last week, about the chemistry set. Remember when you got the Gilbert chemistry set? Ooh, how exciting that was for a kid. Um, The Gilbert chemistry set did not come with poisons. That was, you could make things that fizzed, things that went bang, things that smoked, things that gave off sulfur gas, you know, but you couldn't really make... What was poison? Arsenic was poison. 
Um, form, formaldehyde, if you drank it, was poison. Lye, L-Y-E, was poison. Um, what else? Monsanto is poison. Uh-huh. A little bit of an attitude there. Yeah, yeah. Monsanto. Roundup is poison. Yeah. Um, Monsanto's products are poison. So there were poisons that, you know, if you ingested them, you would die. And the chemistry set didn't give us those because they they didn't want to... At the time, we weren't a a litigious society. We didn't litigate. We didn't sue sue with the drop of a hat. But I think they knew that was, like, morally wrong. Um, Poison, when you put it in your body, makes you very, very sick. Who's had food poisoning? Food poisoning? A little bit? Remember? Yeah. Ouch, ouch. Oh, rolling on the floor. My my one long-term visit to Thailand, to uh, actually Ajahn Jayasaro's retreat center, I somehow managed in my, uh, trying to be so careful, I managed to eat something that made me sicker than I've ever been in my life. I went through the entire night rolling and moaning. And... <laughs> Ajahn Suchito the next morning said, oh, I heard those noises and I sympathized. He said, I remember the last time that happened to me. You were making the same noises I made. I recognized those noises. Oh, just pain. And it was something I ate, didn't agree with me. And I thought it was food. It turned out to be something that made me prefer death. You know, die quickly, please, let this be over. So... That's what poison does. And that was food poisoning. That was something that, I mean, I was hurting, but I wasn't in any serious danger. I was going to get over it once it was out of my system. Real poison will kill you. Um, We have the wife of a major politician in China now admitted to administering poison to her former associate in order to get back at him for having threatened her son, in a way. That's a story that's in the current current news. And she hoped that he would die from the poison she administered. Whether or not she did, the courts say she did, but who knows. Um, emperors of China had on their permanent staff tasters. <laughs> tasters whose job was to eat the food first so that if the food contained poison, the taster would die. Boy, tough job. You hope that they got, you know, see how did you, when they signed up, let's see, uh, are you qualified for this position? You know. Uh, and Chinese food lore is famous for things like chopsticks that discolor when you put them in the, po- in the poison. Stop. Black chopsticks. Off with his head. Bring the cook out here. Kill him right now. So it was a time-honored custom in Chinese court to poison and prevent poison. Why? Because if you eat that, you die. Right? One of the more dramatic moments in the history of poisoning in the world was when uh, Pastor Jones in People's Temple poisoned and told 900 
of his followers to drink Kool-Aid laced with arsenic. And they died. I remember uh, we were in the Dharma assembly the night that happened and it was reported we were there at CTTB. And the news came that 900 people and 900 disciples of, of what was his name? Bob, Rob Jones? What was it? Jim Jones. James Jim Jones. People's Temple had died altogether on, you know, voluntarily and not voluntarily. Some, some led the way. Others had to be dosed. Men, women, and children. Professional people, housewives, kids, students, grandmas, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, um, many from San Francisco, many from Northern California, just died by ingesting poison in Kool-Aid. Hence the phrase, he drank the Kool-Aid. That, that was the birth of that phrase, meaning swallowed it without reflection. And boy, did they die. Um, not to encourage anybody, but the tapes, there was a tape recorder running during that whole, that whole episode. And they played the tapes. I've, I've heard them. I couldn't listen all the way through. Um, so poison will kill you. That's my point in bringing these stories up. Poison will kill you. And here's the sutra talking about three poisons. What are they? Not arsenic, not cyanide, not strychnine, but greed, anger, and delusion. And it's so funny because we're accustomed to these. These are our old friends. We don't think about them as strychnine, arsenic, cyanide, ryacin, right? What's the one that the, the Japanese cult leader put into the Tokyo subways? Ricin, wasn't it? What was it? It was a gas, yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, ricin gas, yeah, extremely toxic. Um, Saddam Hussein used poison gas on Iraqis, on Iranians, when they, the Iraq-Iran war. They, that's one of the few horrific examples of, of chemical warfare in the 20th century. And you smell it and you die. And the First World War was the same. So um, it'll kill you. And in the meantime, it makes you really sick. So here's the Buddha. And the Buddha is not one given to hyperbole, right? He's not trying to use language to scare us. It's not kind of like poison. So he kind of gives it that. He says poison. Greed will poison you. What is it poison? Your happiness. <coughs> Greed destroys your happiness. If we had to use a different verb, we'd say poison destroys your body and life, takes away your life. Greed destroys your happiness. Greed destroys your peace of mind. What does it do? It makes you discontent. Imagine the misery caused when nothing ever satisfies you. We don't think of it that way because we're so used to it, right? What does advertising do? 
Advertising destroys your peace of mind. The job of advertising is to tell you that what you have is not the right one. That's what advertising does. It says, oh no, you need the new one. The one we sold you last time, convincing you that was the one? Mm -mm, Not anymore. You need the new one. So they can sell it and make more money. Okay, there is a wonderful documentary available online, highly recommended. It's called The Century of the Self. The Century of the Self. It's a three-part BBC-produced documentary. Um, Man, I have watched that now seven times. And every opportunity I get to show somebody else, I play it and watch it again. Because there's something more every single time. It's like three hours long. And it's all about advertising. It's about many things, but primarily it's about advertising. And I'll just give you the quick one to illustrate the poison of greed. It's about Sigmund Freud's nephew, a man named Edgar Edmund Bernays. And Bernays was, you know, who's heard his name? Nobody's heard his name. He is one of the most important figures in the 20th century because he invented public relations. He invented advertising. And he wasn't, he's a, he's a clever guy, but he's not a good guy. He didn't have a good heart. B-E-R-N-A-Y-S. Edmund. Edmund Edgar? Edward. Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays. And he took Sigmund Freud, his uncle's theories, and applied them in the real world. And set about to convince a post-war, pre-war and post-war population that they needed stuff. He created the whole concept of mass production and planned obsolescence, products that were not meant to last so that companies who made so much, once you sell your product to everybody, Nobody needs to buy another one, right? You go out of business because nobody's buying it. So he created the idea of consumerism. There was no consumerism before Edward Bernays was hired to convince people that if one was good, two was better. He sold everything from a war in Panama that toppled the, the democratically elected president of Panama. He mounted a PR campaign that toppled the, the, the uh, democratically elected president and led to instability in Panama. He sold that. He also sold cigarettes. This, this, you could go on. This, this would be the end of the lecture. It's, it's such a great story. Oh, it's a great. Okay, the key, the reason why I introduced that idea is they show the situation before Bernays regarding advertising. What was the world like before Bernays created public relations? They show a shoe shop. You need some shoes? Where do you go? You go to the shoe shop. What does the shoe shop have over the door? It's got a picture of a shoe, and it says, shoes. (laughs) 
and you go in and you get a pair. And they're mostly black and they lace up and they're sturdy as can be. Because why? Those are your shoes. And you put them on your feet and you wear them. And they keep your feet safe and dry and free of pebbles and rocks. And you know what happens when the soles wear out? You take them to the shoe shop to get them repaired. And they ask you, do you want a half sole? Do you want a full sole? you want a heel? My, sh- I had re- my shoes are rehealed for years. We had the favorite cobbler, right? The cobbler re- puts new heels on your shoes. If the leather gets cracked, what do you do? You work in some neat's foot oil to make it supple. How many times have you bought shoelaces in your life? Dozens, right? And if you're nodding, you're old. Sorry. Shoelaces, man. Shoelaces wore out. Well, you got to replace them because why? Your shoes need shoelaces. <laughs> okay. Go to your closet tonight. Take a look. <laughs> How many shoes do you have? Oh, pairs and pairs and pairs of shoes. So Bernays comes along and he convinces people that one pair of shoes isn't enough. You need a new pair. Brown shoes. Brown shoes. <laughs> it's like, what a con- I need brown shoes. Everybody's wearing brown shoes now. Let's get a pair of brown Blacks, not the color this season. Brown shoes? Why do I need brown? Well, everybody else has brown. Wingtips. Whoa, my shoes have holes in them. <laughs> the whole wingtips. Right. On and on. And then high heels. And then different styles. He created a demand for shoes where none was before. What's it called? Greed. And if you have the old-fashioned black lace-ups and everybody else is wearing brown low cuts, you're not going to be content. And then everybody else has wingtip, and then everybody else has two-tone shoes, brown and white, black and white, shiny, matte-colored, glossy, on and on. And they give that example. Well, he did that for everything. One, one quick story. An amazing, amazing story. After you see this, you never, you never see advertising and consumer demand the same way. Products, right? Well, companies said, everybody has one of our widget. We need to sell more widgets. Edward Bernays, can you sell more widgets for us? He says, let me think about it. Okay, cigarettes. Smoking was something that men did. Women did not smoke. If a woman smoked, she was considered a low-class woman, uh, someone to look down upon. She was, you know, of suspect morality. Okay, because women didn't. All right. The American Tobacco Company, or I believe, or Philip Morris, or, or Liggett and Myers, or any of those tobacco companies, went to Bernays and said, we need to sell more cigarettes, please. We have all this tobacco because why they produced it for the war. Uh, this is pre-war. Produced it for World War I. This is like 20s. And so Bernays said, how are we going to do it? Well, he looked around and what was happening at the time was women's suffrage. Suffrage is a funny word meaning the vote. Women couldn't vote. Women were not allowed to vote, right, back in the 20s. So right at this time, 
there were uh, Susan B. Anthony and Katie, Elizabeth Katie Staten and Stanton and these famous uh, figures in American democratic history who were campaigning to get women empowered to vote was happening right then. What was happening? Well, there were marches in New York City, Washington, D.C., where debutantes, that was a power word, young women, particularly college students, were going to be marching for suffrage, for the, the right to vote, so voting rights. Bernays went to the university campuses, Columbia University and New York University, with lots and lots of packs of cigarettes. And he talked to the young women. And he said, all right. He said, you, young debutantes, are going to be marching. All of the world's press is going to be focusing on this huge issue, which is, should women vote? Right? Just the way they are, should there be a black president of the United States? Should gays be allowed to marry? Right? Should women be allowed to determine their own fertility and their own families? Same amount of intensity and focus, maybe much more, because rights was not something we were used to back then. All of the press was going to show up for the march, the suffrage marches. So Bernays gave all the women who were going to march a pack of cigarettes. And he told them at the signal tomorrow, when you're out marching under the glare of the flashbulbs, pull out a cigarette, light it up, and call them freedom torches. Torches of freedom. Right? Lit cigarettes. These are all young women. They're already out there on the edge because they're demonstrating for the right to vote. Women all over the world are looking at this new statement by young 20-year-old college students, 20s and, and teens, marching for the right to vote. Very popular among half the population, right? So, goes off like clockwork. The women show up, the signal is given, they all reach under their skirts to their garters, pull out their cigarettes, light them up, and say, torches of freedom, we want the vote. It's on every newspaper in the world, young women creating a new image. Freedom, cigarettes. Voting rights, light up. Torches of freedom, lung cancer. Never mind. Overnight, cigarette sales doubled. Edward Bernays launched public relations, advertising, consumer demand. It's like other companies said, well, he did that for American tobacco. Can he do it for us? Sure enough, Edward Bernays became the hot property and greed was born. It was so effective, so attractive, the whole image Right? So, in Hollywood, Hollywood, of course, picked up on it right away. For the next 30 years, cigarettes infiltrated Hollywood films. Clark Gable, 
lighting up a cigarette, right? Myrna Loy, smoking cigarettes. Oh, my God. Every Hollywood film for those decades, it, when it went into the war, Second World War, of course, Marlon Brando, everybody's smoking, right? So it's like, that's how you do it. You create an image, make it attractive, put a product, you sell it. This is created by largely by one man and the industry he created. So that's the end of the story. But you understand it was it was huge. So only later uh, in the 70s did people start to say, hey, you know, no more cigarettes in movies, giving the wrong impression. And in the 80s and 90s, cigarettes were banned from films. It has come back. Have you noticed? In the last five or ten years, lots of cigarettes showing up in movies. Why? Tobacco industry couldn't stand it. They are paying to have their products placed. That's another story. We won't go there tonight. But so there we go. Greed comes in. Desire comes in. Wisdom goes away. Once greed is present, it's harder to ask, should I? Should I do this? The lure of profit is huge. Profit. Benefit for the few. Harm for the many. Don't ask. Because there's benefit. And greed comes slowly. Greed is a, is a poison. And it kills your ability to use insight and principle. Because it, greed works on feeling. Greed feels good, briefly, never mind the long-term harm. We forget. Okay, next, anger, anger, hatred, rage, anger, a poison. It moves quickly. Greed is slow, anger's quick, and it poisons us. It can destroy relationships. It can destroy well-being it can destroy nations. It can destroy your body. When anger rises, people do things they regret. Right? I, I know. I remember. I'm sure many of you can as well. It's a poison. It'll kill you just like strychnine kills dogs, coyotes, rabbits. Right? When farmers leave poisoned meat... To kill the predators that are destroying their flocks, their herds, it's mostly strychnine. And you come out and you see these dogs, coyotes, just suffering so grievously. And it's poison. Anger is that way. Um, Master Shenhua would warn about anger over and over and over. He would say, what is cultivation? If you cannot get angry, you can cultivate. That's Kung Fu. You wouldn't hear him say, are you enlightened? Who's enlightened? He would say, who can not get angry? And then, once you were a monastic disciple and he was, you were his to teach, he would press your button to see if he could get you angry. He would try to get you angry. And over and over again, because it's your button, it's your blind spot, right? He would press your button. One of his favorite was, 
blaming you for something you didn't do. Clearly, one of your Dharma brothers had done it, and you would get the blame and the, the scolding and the punishment. And he would see if you could take it. And if you flared back, he'd go, okay, try later. Couldn't pass your test. You know, try again. Side lie, you know, later. And you'd have this empty feeling. Oh, no, I blew it. That was a test. And, of course, the person who had actually done it felt terrible because they knew they'd escaped the blame. So he got two for one, you know. (laughs) Really skillful. And invisibly, if you've actually been scolded by a sage, there's, there's huge merit, but only if you can take it. No. So he would sometimes say, well, I'm not, when I scold you, I'm not angry, I'm not moving, I'm fertilizing your good roots. I'm giving you some merit. And boy, at the time when you're being scolded, it was hard to take. And if you could endure it, there was a feeling of being smelted through. Your furnace was titanium. It didn't blow up. It was kryptonite furnace. Kryptonite shields. You didn't blow up, but it was hard. It's like going through a fire. And yet, it was cold flames. Kind of hard to describe. Being scolded by a sage. At the time, it just feels that way. What's it like? Moms have that don't mess with me look. Right? Moms give the eye to the kid. You know. You know what it's like. Or dads do it. And the kid knows, oh, he means it. Right? And it's just a look. And you have to do it a lot when it's your kid. Because you're shaping this young character. And, you know, the frown. Mom's frown. It should be enough. Because, well, they say Michelle Obama, she, she has a powerful frown. When she's teaching Malia or Sasha. You know. That, that uh, you don't want to mess with Michelle. She looks, she's got that look. And you know, her mother had the look for her too. So it's a very effective shaping tool if it's don't mess with me. Well, the teacher is so good at that, you know, a real teacher. But his heart is solid kind. So he contemplates how all things born of conditions have a fatal flaw. Tied to anxiety, depression, misery, and delusion. The bonfires of three poisons always blazing. The third one is delusion. And you don't think of it as a poison, but it will poison you. It's a wrong view. If you go off believing that something is true because somebody said so, and it's not, you've been poisoned. The consequences of that, what would it be like? Imagine signing a mortgage that the bank officer knew was going to go bad on you because you couldn't afford it and they were going to repossess it. Ah, story I heard. See the story today? Wells Fargo, bless their black hearts, (laughs) foreclosed on a house yesterday, Southern California, went in demolished everything in the house from the dishes to the beds to the furniture to the pictures on the wall and it was the wrong house. They wiped out an old couple. Everything in the house was handmade. 
because the father was a do-it-yourselfer. They're both in their late 70s. And they came home and found the house stripped from the carpets to the curtains. Everything was made by them over 50 years in the house. Wrong one. Wells Fargo says, well, we're mortified by this big error. We will try our best to make it right. And you go. So somebody, the, the angel of death passed over one house that maybe signed a mortgage under duress or were told no problem. This is a quick turnaround mortgage. You're safe. And the bank had bundled that mortgage, had tied that mortgage together with a bunch of other mortgages from people who didn't intend to pay it back, right? And they found without knowing, because the bank had gambled with their security, they found themselves out of a home. Is it delusion? Well, it poisons them all the same. Where's the delusion? Where do you trace it back? At what point was the original thought, you know, doesn't matter, go ahead and sign? Oh, what is more fundamental than a roof over your head? Okay. So here we have examples of greed. You could say that, that when, when people's mortgages became a chip to bargain with to make quick money, which is what the deregulated Wall Street bankers did. There's greed, anger, and delusion all tied together. Three poisons. Which one comes first? Hard to say. But that story needs to be told. That story needs to be sung about. It needs to be put on the silver screen. Talk about evil. People who knowingly turn security fundamental to people's lives into a means to get rich quick and get out called toxic mortgage right toxic assets you know that they're based on nothing greed and you know that they're going to expire and hurt people and you do it so you can how sad so uh that's the greed of delusion, that somehow this is good. And we don't see the consequences. I believe, in my experience, that if I knew when I started down the road where it was going to lead, I would make a whole bunch fewer mistakes. Imagine if you could see the effect after you plant the cause. Immediately, if you had a little screen that said, you know what's going to happen after you do that? <laughs> You're going to have a baby. <laughs> and that kid's going to grow up and hate you. <gasps> really? <laughs> Can we just watch the movie? <laughs> it's like, oh, you know what's going to happen after you do that? You know? You're going to wind up hating each other. Or you're going to wind up behind bars. Or you're going to wind up feeling more embarrassed than you ever have your entire life. You, know, you go, oh, can I wait on that one? Can I do that one again? Can I have that one back? You know? Wow, imagine. 
if you could see the results as soon as you or just before you plant the seed. Wow. You know what's going to happen after you decide that you're going to get back that guy who cuts you off at 70 miles an hour? You go chasing him? You know what's going to happen? Maybe you better let that one go. Road rage. Oh my. So, greed, anger, and delusion. If we can see the results as we plant the seed or before we plant the seed, how many (coughs) karmic (coughs) results would be prevented? But we don't. We don't see it. And you could say that wisdom is looking ahead to the result from the from the cause, looking to the harvest as you plant. Often we say wisdom is knowing the seed and the fruit in one look, right? You know the cause and the effect as you do it. That's a good description of wisdom. You look at the root, you know the branch tip. You see the branch tip, you know the root it came from. So wisdom is the ability to see that and then going, oh, I do it different. Or simply, I'm not going to move this time. I'm going to wait. I can let that one go. I can let that one go. The problem with that is it, letting it go doesn't feel like anything. It tastes like cabbage boiled in water. No flavor. And sometimes our senses are so numb by excessive stimulation that simply waiting you can't feel it and so you have to like go further in order to feel it sometimes our consciences get numb it's called compassion fatigue or it's just called stress we can't feel it we talk about gateway drugs right people say that marijuana is a gateway drug After you smoke enough dope, you can't feel it anymore, so you have to escalate to cocaine. And after too much coke, you can't feel that, so you escalate to crack. And then you escalate that to meth, and then you're dead. And at that point, you can't escalate it any further. Is that a true theory or not? I don't know. There is definitely the the jury is out of whether marijuana is a gateway drug. That's not a topic for tonight. But... There is a sense that once you get numb, you can't feel it anymore. And at that point, you can't sense innately whether you should or not. Okay? Um, I had the most amazing experience living in Aspen, Colorado. And I'll never forget how greed, anger, and delusion burns to where you you can't feel it anymore. And the bonfires of the three poisons blaze from time without beginning, without cease, that this is the story of all living beings from beginning this time till now. I was, in 1971, I was in Aspen at the Aspen Institute for Humanistic Studies. I was there as a resource person being a college graduate student. And I was there to represent liberals, 
hippies, yippies, and the whole damn zoo in Spiro T. Agnew's deathless phrase. Hippies, yippies, the whole damn zoo. I was there to speak on behalf of young people and radicals. And this was a, a group of scholars and business leaders and social uh, spokespersons who came to Aspen to have an experience, to look into what are called the enduring questions once again. And uh, I was there as, as I say, the young person in residence. And part of the, the conference, part of the, the seminar, was, took place in the restaurant. And the Aspen Institute hired a restaurant called the Garden of the Four Seasons where all the participants took three meals a day. And talking together while you eat is a big part of it. Well, the, the restaurant, I never thought of this before, but instead of the Garden of the Four Seasons, the restaurant could have been called the, the Inn of the Three Poisons. It would have been a very appropriate name. Greed, anger, and delusion, all there at once. Most of all, the greed part. And I had never eaten food at that level before to where my tongue went numb. I'd never experienced that before. And here's how it went. Everything came on carts to your table. And you, you could order the entree, but everything else was just wheeled to your table. And breakfast, breakfast, people didn't come much for breakfast. It was just breakfast. It was sausage and eggs and ham and bacon and, and you know, pancakes and waffles and six kinds of syrup, all freshly picked berries from the Colorado Rockies. But lunch, lunch was a choice of entrees from lobster to sirloin tips to roast beef to crayfish. And then dinner was that magnified by three times. It was just everything was gourmet, feast and fan, and everything had its own special sauce. And nor seasoning powder, you know, which is a special Swedish formula. And, and when you were done eating, then came the dessert tray and the dessert cart. And out comes the dessert cart. And here are cakes and pies and crullers and, you know, tarts and creme brulee and baked Alaska. And you, and you go... That looks so good, I think I'll have one of each. <laughs> yes. Come uh, uh, and bring it, you know. I was a college student. I've been cooking for myself brown rice and steamed vegetables. I've been eating brown rice and steamed vegetables for about two years at that point, and I couldn't afford any of that. So I was like, yes, you know. Yeah, have a, let's see, how about some of that apple pie and cherry pie and peach pie? <laughs> Put them on one of them, and, and I, but I was, I was 21 years old. I had an appetite like you know the Rocky Mountains, and just like fill it up. I ate, I tried everything. I I was not a vegetarian. I was brown rice and vegetables because that's all I could afford, much less all I knew how to cook. You know, but it was the special Nor seasoning sauce that did me in. My tongue went on strike. I couldn't believe it. After a week of eating in the Garden of the Four Seasons, the Garden of the Three Poisons, I couldn't taste anything. And you had to up 
the ante. I had to like, I can't taste that. You know, would you put some hot sauce on there? It's like, wow. On and on. I remember, you know, I actually had an epiphany. I had a moment. And I had been a vegetarian the two years before in Japan. But, and I was determined to be a vegetarian again, but the Garden of the Four Seasons totally corrupted me because it all looked <laughs> delicious. These dinners cost $15, and back in 1970, that was, you know, $50. And we went out to uh, Snowmass to a place called Toklat, which was a, a resort where they had sled dogs. And this was in the summer, mind you, so the sled dogs were off-duty. But... The, um, the guy's name was Stuart Mace, I remember. And Stuart Mace ran the sled dogs at Toklat. And he took us out, and we went for a picnic. And I was the young person, and I was the entertainment as well. I had my guitar, and I was singing John Denver songs. Rocky Mountain High, Colorado. Everybody liked that. So I said to Stuart Mace, I said, Stuart, I'm not going to be eating red meat. I said, what have you got? And he said, how about some rainbow trout? And I said, great. And he said, okay. He reaches for his fishing rod right and reel and he says this won't take a minute (laughs) and he takes out a fly and I'm watching Stuart I'm watching him he goes over there oh here's one get the net here's this rainbow trout fighting for its life you know he goes like that it's a rainbow trout there's one right he catches three rainbow trout, kills them in front of my eyes. And I'm watching this beautiful, brilliant, you know, multicolored, fantastic, fighting Rocky Mountain fish dead in front of me. He scrapes the scales off, whack, chops off the head, whack, chops off the head, whack. And these heads are like that and I'm looking at the eyes of this rainbow trout and he lets them bones them breads them puts them in butter and breadcrumbs throws them in the skillet flops them on my plate in about six minutes and I'm going I lost my appetite I'm not hungry because there it was and I mean what could be more delicious if you're freshly that fish was breathing in the water seven minutes ago. And there it is, filleted on my plate. And I was like thinking, I, mm, no, no. And I went back that night, broke out my steamer, measured the brown rice, <laughs> got the right amount of water to the rice, put in some sea salt, and waited, and I ate every grain. And I didn't know, I'd never met Guan Yin Bodhisattva, but I wanted Guan Yin to pray to and repent. I just thought, give me the brown rice, man. I, my tongue is numb. My heart is numb. I just saw these beautiful fish reduced to fillets in front of my eyes. That's enough. And I didn't go back to the Garden of the Three Poisons. I didn't go back. And, Lord have mercy. And I never would have believed that my tongue could go numb with flavor. What came to mind was Lao Tzu. What did Lao Tzu say? He says, the five colors blind the eye. The five sounds deafen the ear. The five flavors numb the palate. And I swear, it's true. 
when you, having gone from zero, from a brown rice and steamed vegetables diet to the Garden of the Four Seasons, and then your tongue goes numb, you go, I experienced that. That was my own experience. I can testify to the fact that the five flavors numb the palate. By golly, it's true. And I must say, I finished that summer eating brown rice and vegetables and knowing why. Knowing why. And by the end of the summer, my sense of taste came back and my heart felt pain again, you know after having just seen them, I've been horrified by the violence done to beautiful fish. Fish, you know, people eat them, Catholics eat them every Friday, you know. And they consider fasting is good to not eat meat. And fish are relatively small consciousness. What about when it's a cow or a pig or a sheep? People say pigs are the most intelligent pets you can have. Pigs are not naturally dirty. Pigs will keep themselves clean if given the option. If you give them a pigsty, they, they love that too. They're not all that particular. And they have, I beg your pardon. That's right, you can testify, right? That's right. Yeah. Wait till I get my But they are so smart. They can be trained. Pigs let themselves in. They let themselves out. They communicate. They have a vocabulary. You know, they look after each other. They are extremely loving. They, they cuddle, you know. And that's called bacon and pork chops. So we are numb. Edward Bernays numbed us to the poison of greed. We don't need 9, 12, 15 pairs of shoes. If you had 15 pairs of feet, you might want them, you know. But one pair of feet and different kinds of shoes, okay? But we got numb. We went from shoes to Air Jordans. Yeah, oh man. So we get numb to it. We take it as normal now. And remember my mother's depression mantra? How does it go? Use it up. Wear it out. Make it do or do without. Right? Use it up meaning use it until you can't use it anymore. Wear it out. When you wear it out, you patch it. My mother always wore her sister's hand-me-down dresses until she was in high school. Use it up, wear it out, make it do. So if you don't like it, you got it. You got no choice because you don't have the second pair. Or do without, meaning it's gone. Those were your shoes. If you don't believe it, just lose your shoes. We <laughs> had... Uh, the Berkeley Monastery, when it was the Set Free Christian Fellowship, used to be a closed distribution place for the homeless. It, they set it up this way so that homeless folks could come here and, and find clothes. And there were, we had a clothes bin here for a long time. And uh, it was listed in books as a place where homeless folks could come to find clothing. And that was righteous. But when the Buddhists came, we stopped doing that. And they had, there were showers here, too. We stopped doing that. But the word was still out there. And so I came in when it was a... Actually, it was a DRBY conference years, years, years back. And I was not on. I'd already spoken. And I was in the back. And I came into the Buddha Hall to see how the conference was going. 
and there was a really large guy in about four layers of clothes, a guy who had a smell around him, and he was going over the shoes. And I said, hi, can I help you? He said, no. And he's looking, you know, he says, wrong size, man. And I go, what? Wrong size. You got anything bigger? And I go, wait, 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 wait a minute. No, no, no. These shoes all have owners. All these shoes. This is a shoe rack for the people in there. He says, "What? <laughs> no, these are not shoes for this. These are these shoes have feet in them. You know." He's, oh yeah. What am I going to do? And he needed shoes. You know, his feet were really big. So poor guy. I had to send him away without shoes. I didn't want to do that. I didn't have anything that would fit him. But there was one time when people came out and their shoes were gone. So it might have been that somebody <laughs> somebody found some shoes. Unfortunately, they were shoes that had owners. So that person went home without shoes. And when you don't have shoes to wear, you appreciate shoes. Oh, my goodness. And, says the sutra, Wu Shi. From time without beginning. Can you imagine beginningless time? Time before there was even a clock or a calendar or a watch or a digital readout or an iPhone that told you the time. From that long ago, greed, anger, and delusion have been poisons. To this day, they are the same. No different. So, the benefit of looking at the sutra like this, he contemplates how all things born of conditions have a fatal flaw. They're tied to anxiety, depression, misery, and delusion. The bonfires of three poisons always blazing. How from time without beginning it is so and doesn't stop. So, flip that around. The Buddha is not saying three poisons and therefore bad and stupid. Stupid living being. Not at all. He's saying here is the condition that makes living beings, sentient beings, what we are. What is the description of sentient beings? Made of many conditions and in undergoing endless rounds of rebirth. Why do we undergo endless rounds of rebirth? By and large, because of greed, anger, and delusion. Where does that stuff come from? It comes from the nature of being a living, sentient creature, not yet awake. Sentient beings are not yet Buddhas. We are not yet awake. On the road to awakening, what keeps us asleep? Greed, anger, and delusion. And the Buddha would go on and say pride and doubt. The five the five fundamental afflictions. Greed, anger, and delusion. Stupidity is delusion. Because of those things, we are living beings, sentient beings. You don't get a sentient being without those. When you become a Buddha, it's because greed, anger, and delusion no longer poison you 
us. I remember Sheriff was saying one day, Master Shrinvan, he said, you know, I am just like you all. I am just like you all. In fact, I am more like you all than you know because you have forgotten what you were in your past lives. I still remember. The only thing that's different, the only thing that's different about me is I don't have any more affliction. And we go, yeah, yeah, Sherpa, that's good. That's great, Sherpa. Totally missing the point of that. What does it mean to have no more afflictions? It means no more poison. Greed, anger, and delusion are fannau. They are klesha, kilesa in Pali. They're the things that make us hurt. If we suddenly, at this minute, were free of poison, life would be good. We'd be comfortable in our bodies, for one. We wouldn't age. Or if we aged, we wouldn't fear it. We wouldn't suffer as we aged. I don't think the pain goes away, but the reaction to the pain, the hatred of it, the running for pleasure, running from pain, the constant dissatisfaction, the constant irritation, the constant confusion, all that would be over. Can you imagine what it would be like to be poison-free? Right? When he says, I don't have any affliction, it's like, the size of that comment is just huge. No further affliction. All the things that go wrong in our lives come about because of affliction, greed, anger, and delusion. And when we do something right for once, occasionally, it's usually because we did it with less greed, anger, and delusion. If you can conceive of that, I mean, you, we all know things we did well. When was the last time you did something just about right? Probably it had to do with what? Precepts, concentration, and wisdom, which are the flip of greed, anger, and delusion. The, the phrase goes, Qin shou jie ding hui, xi mie tan zhen shi. How many times do we hear Shifu say that? Diligently work hard at cultivating character, concentration, insight. Being a fine, upstanding, principled person, being unscattered and concentrated and pure, and then using principle and insight so that you actually do something that three steps down the road is still right. The repercussions of it are right. And means wipe out, put an end to greed, anger, delusion, affliction, poison. Put an end to that. Boy, oh boy, imagine. And the sutra says, going back, nobody still in samsara has been free of it. Going forward, nobody in the future will be free of it until we cultivate and that is the promise of the third noble truth. The third noble truth says suffering can cease. It can end. All right. Quick comparison. Jesus died for your sins. If you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, if you accept that he has died 
for you, then accepting that gives you the potential to be saved by God's grace, not by works. Now, I'm, there's a lot of ways to say that message, and I'm not very skillful at saying it. But the idea is, from that theological perspective, which is the dominant theological perspective, one historical act wipes away the poison. This line in the sutra says, wow. It says these poisons are there in living beings throughout history, throughout the future. And this bodhisattva sees it functioning. And we're not there yet, but he's going to, she's going to devote her life to finding a way to, through works, get rid of those poisons. So I just brought up that point to say what a different view. And it it hinges on that issue of poison, of affliction. The Buddha's teaching is that you have to work to get rid of the affliction, but you can. The Third Noble Truth says suffering can end. How do you end it? Eightfold path. The Bodhisattva would say you can also end it for others through the Paramitas. It takes it one step further, but it's the same teaching. Here's theistic religions, and I mentioned Christianity, but all of the teachings of the book that center around prophets and, and gods say the same thing, that God does it for you. That's a big difference. And I don't know, and I'm, I am somebody who teaches Buddhist Christian dialogue, right? I don't know if you can hold those two worldviews at the same time. I'm very much interested in finding common ground, but there are places where you have to say, this is a different road. And at that point, I am not a disciple of God's, any theistic system, where it tells me that somebody else will take the poison away from me. It's not my experience. Poison kills you. You have to counteract it. You have to do an antidote. And the antidote is the Buddha Dharma. As powerful as affliction is, the Buddha Dharma is exactly the antidote to to counteract. What do you say? Neutralize poison. What do you do to poison? You neutralize it. You take what's called an antitoxin, anti-venom. Right? In Australia... There are 17,000 kinds of spiders. 17,000? Sounds like too many, doesn't it? When you go to Australia, you might believe that. 7,000. I think there's 7,000 species of spiders. And of them, there are like four or five that are really toxic. One is called the, the Sydney funnel, funnel web. The Sydney funnel web spider is considered to be the most toxic, and they're common. They're, they're not... Nobody has died of a Sydney funnel web spider in the last eight years. Why? The antitoxin is is widespread. All local hospitals, clinics, doctors' offices have the anti venom right there, and so people get bit, but they 
they know where to go to get the toxin. And it goes in, and if you don't get the antitoxin, your heart stops beating. It, it's a nerve thing. It gets to the nerves and it doesn't fire anymore, and you, you choke. And it's deadly poison, but they can get you to the, the, the medicine quick. So the medicine for the poisons of greed, anger, and delusion is the Buddha Dharma. 84,000 afflictions, 84,000 Dharma methods. If you have greed, you practice what? Generosity. Giving. Sharing. Handing the stuff to someone else. Passing it on. It counters greed. You get the joy of giving. It happens. If you have anger, there are several. One is patience. When it arises, and kindness, if it has arisen. You see the effect and you practice kindness instead and anger goes away. You see the harm that it does and you don't stop doing it. But it rises quick. So you have to be really, your patience, your power of patience has to be strong. Samadhi. So, ding crosses over chen. Right? You have to have stillness and patience and kindness. Bit by bit, anger subsides. And three, if you have delusion, if you're confused, if you don't believe in cause and effect, the anti-venom, the thing that crosses it over is wisdom, insight. You have to really see the way things work and delusion goes away. So greed is crossed over by character and giving. Jie, right? generosity. Anger. It's crossed over by patience and samadhi, ding. Delusion is crossed over by wisdom. Jerry? Um, I understand the first two, but wisdom is not something that you, I don't know how to practice it. I don't know how to practice it. Start with knowledge, and typically knowledge of the Dharma. So, uh, that word, delusion, sometimes is translated as stupidity, but it's defined as often not believing in cause and effect. So start with that one. Look at cause and effect. Real stupidity, said the Buddha, that will poison you, is believing that if I do this, nothing's going to happen. If I, if I lie and nobody hears me, I get away with it. Right? Because nobody heard it? Well, that's disbelieving in cause and effect. That's a fundamental poison. Cause and effect is a law of the universe. It's not the Buddha's invention. So if you can start there and really see, yes, in fact, causes bring about results. It's not the case that you got away with it because nobody knew. Right? Wall Street bankers somehow feeling that they got over on everybody. They scored. There's retribution ahead, right? The kid who thinks that by lying to his parents, he's won, you know. The retribution happens, as we say, behind the eyes. When you tell a lie, the retribution is right here. The, the book, the scorecard is kept right inside. So the one who knows is you. Master Hua would say, okay, you told a lie. You know what happens when you tell a lie? The originally calm 
ocean of the mind has 100 waves on it. When can you see all the way through to the bottom? Tell me when those waves subside. How many lies did you tell today? That's how many times 100 waves you've got, right? So when you lie, you may have deceived somebody, but it's you who you've harmed. So that's it's an internal interpretation of cause and effect. So when you kill, yes, you took the life out of somebody, but what it did to your own seeds of compassion, the effect on your wisdom nature, the mirror of your wisdom is cracked because you killed somebody. You've broken that connection that we all share. So there's an internal effect of every cause, broken precept outside. You think you got over, but in fact, you did the harm to yourself. And that's actually how the Avatamsaka, it says the effect, the act of killing can cause you to lose your human body. But if you come back as a human, there are two retributions. One, short life, two, many illnesses. So that's, you know, so believe in cause and effect, the Buddha would say. That's the first step towards wisdom. And the more Buddha Dharma you hear, the more knowledge you gain. When you put it into practice, you go, oh, that's a principle. Wisdom can grow. So, and then you say there's three kinds of wisdom. There's one, this is a boro. There's knowledge of principle. There's guan zhao boro, which is you put it into practice and you see it working. Then there's shi xiang boro, ultimate reality, where your wisdom is, is working. So there are different phases of wisdom, but you start with something like cause and effect. If you don't believe in cause and effect, that's called diluted. Right, so you starting there is is how you get there. Well, by golly, time is up. How are we doing? Questions online? Um, Your question. Yeah. Go for it. Are there others uh, not believed in things under the illusion that are commonly used? Uh, are other other things are disbelief in other things also delusion? Yeah. Give me what's on your mind, for example. Yeah, but that's a good place to start. Yeah, for sure. Um, sometimes, uh, what's other kinds of delusion? There's uh, one in particular, which is um, believing in rules as a theology. So it's a prohibitive morality, holding the precepts so tightly that you wind up constricting your own insight. So you can hold the precepts in a way that obstructs you. You know, it's too much of, it's called views of prohibited morality. You can be too, too smart for your own good. Sharpen the knife until it's dull. Right? If you sharpen a knife skillfully, then it's cuts. If you get it nice and sharp and then you do it three more times, you've lost the edge. So there's, there's a list of them that the Buddha mentioned. We've come to the end of our time and the questions are just starting. Bummer. Wow. Uh, and we also got one paragraph lectured here. But how important is an understanding of these three poisons? The Buddha said that's what puts us back on the wheel. They burn forever and they always have. It's those that make living beings. And yet you don't have 
So you don't have a living being without greed, anger, and delusion, but you don't have greed, anger, and delusion without living beings doing it. So this is insight. And our third ground bodhisattva, seeing this, is going to react and go seeking true wisdom to benefit others. All right, by golly, we're making slow but steady progress through our text. Dharma Master, how many years is it going to take you to finish that thing? Who's in a hurry? Anybody here in a hurry? Dharma Master, is there a speed reading version of the Avatamsa? Okay, we're going to transfer the merit, and you'll find it either on this sheet or the last page of your songbook, which should be there in front of you. chord is so powerful, isn't it? Sounds sad compared to thank you ah, all is well, peace joy and harmony trouble, affliction poison the antidote get out and vote for the presidential election. Go register and vote.
Okay, I have something special tonight. Extra points if you know what this is. A dulcimer. Five points. It's a mountain dulcimer. Handcrafted. Very lovely. simple to make wooden box three strings four strings and usually it's played with a feather I don't have a feather I have fingernails so I'm using my fingernails Joni Mitchell plays it on a lot of her tunes sound like? A stringed bagpipe. Probably brought to the mountains of Appalachia by Scottish immigrants. I'll sing you this October song. There is no song before it. The words and to Joys and sorrows bore Beside the sea, the bramble briars in the still of the swim the seas within my mind and the pine trees laugh green laughter this is such a Buddhist song I 
used to search for happiness and I used to follow pleasure but I found the door behind my mind and that's the greatest treasure for rulers like to lay down laws and rebels like to break them and the poor priests monks like to walk in chains and the Buddha likes to forsake them never does creative creativity with the lyrics there you understand I met a man whose name was time and he said I must be going but just how long that was I have no way of knowing sometimes I want to murder time sometimes when my heart's aching but mostly I just stroll along the same path he is taking because I'm a living being and I'm full of greed, anger, and delusion sing to you this October song there is no song before it the words and tunes are none of my own for my joys and sorrows bore it beside the sea the brambly briars in the still of the evening the sun and with them I'll be leaving there you go like that one. Are you speaking in the microphone? Yeah, they can hear me. Okay, good. And what did you want to say? Uh, the monk here needs some uh, animal stories, and uh, he's going to talk in L.A. about animals, and, uh, and so I'm asking for any animal stories on his behalf. You can talk about pigtails and, uh, you know, and pig ears. Just don't talk about bacon or pork chops. <laughs> but any animal stories, especially the ones that touch your heart, he needs them. Email them in. And I'm his new secretary, and I'll read them all. All right. Thank you very much. That's nice that you solicit. You're very cute. You're nice. So he uh, is speaking on behalf of me, who is going down to L.A. in October to uh, talk about spirituality and animals. And last week's story about the elephants got a uh, big response. Jay uh, Tobias wrote in... Uh, about animal stories and how that the uh, the elephant whisperer had touched him, and we found the book online, 
the Elephant Whisperer. Amazing story. So anybody who has uh, mm, personal animal stories or stories you'd like to turn me on to that I can build my case about the world not only being about humans, I would love to hear about it. So I'm building my slideshow now, and after I put it together for for LA for the VegSource conference in October, I'll show it here. So please do send me your